Welcome to Data Brew by Databricks with Denny and Brooke. This series allows us to explore various topics in the data and AI community. Whether we're talking about data engineering or data science, we'll interview subject matter experts to dive deeper into these topics. And while we're at it, please enjoy your morning brew. My name is Denny Lee, and I'm a developer advocate here at Databricks. Hello, everyone. My name is Brooke Wenig, and I'm the other co-host of Data Brew. I'm the machine learning practice lead at Databricks. And today I have the pleasure of introducing Irina Malkova, VP of Data Science Applications at Salesforce to Databrew. Irina, how about we kick it off with a quick introduction of yourself? Sure, hi everyone. Hi Danny, hi Brooke. Thank you so much guys for having me. Um, so like Brooke said, I lead a team called Data Science Applications. It's a really cool little team at Salesforce whose goal is to develop ML apps for our internal stakeholders to help them make better decisions. So stakeholders would be product managers or customer success or salespeople, and uh, decisions have to do with making our customers successful. Uh, yeah, happy to be here, excited. I love the customer obsession. Before we jump into some of the use cases that you're working on at Salesforce, how about we take a step back and talk about how did you get into this field of machine learning? Awesome, thank you so much for this question. Brings me all the way back down the memory lane. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like I got into machine learning because what I really, really, really care about is really great decision-making. So I started my career in as a consultant at McKinsey back in Russia in 2008, a long time ago. Um, and it was all about helping, helping executives make better decisions. It's just the tools that we needed to help them make those better decisions at that point were two by two matrices right because there was if decisions were not comp t totally complicated and there was not a dramatic amount of data that was needed to, to truly help them and it was not until i got into tech um, after coming to united states to get my mba at stanford um, in 2011 so not not after i got to the United States and started working in tech i actually had to start leveraging statistical methods and machine learning to truly help with decision-making. And um, um, I started off working at a couple of startups um, and my very, very first job was at the uh, startup that made a really cool calendar uh, called Tempo. It has been since acquired by Salesforce. Um, I was helping them set up their product analytics and help their PMs make better decisions about how their user behaved. And um, eventually I ended up um, at Salesforce and there is absolutely nothing um, more complex than decision-making in enterprise, in my humble opinion, because our customers are all dramatically complex. There are many, many, many different use cases. Um, the uh, way they use Salesforce is dramatically complex. Not uh, every customer would see something different on their screen just because of how customizable the tool is. Um, and the the way we sell is really complex. There's so many different roles. And because of, because of all of that complexity, human mind can't actually process um, all of this data to make the right decision. So it's very, very ripe for machine learning. So that's how I'm here. Um, that's, it, it's definitely been very, very exciting. Um, and uh, like I said, uh, my team is developing apps that, that, that are supporting that decision-making for internal stakeholders. Oh, this is awesome. And we can definitely hear from your excitement here, the, the, all, all the cool things you're trying to do. So then let's just dive right into it. Can you tell a little bit maybe of some of the use cases that your team actually gets to work on like, to help with that decision making? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the enterprise use cases are um, relatively standard in terms of what enterprise companies need, um, uh, which is actually 
one really cool thing about this job because some of the things that we have built for our internal stakeholders eventually made it to Salesforce product because that's something if our internal stakeholders need it, chances are our customers need it too. Just because in enterprise, these use cases are pretty repeatable. Um, so one example would be all of the different use cases around um, helping salespeople sell better. You can only imagine the complexity of selling something as massive as an enterprise platform like Salesforce, right? There's many, many tools. There is Salesforce for sales and for service people and for marketing, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, really hard for a typical salesperson to know um, which company to go after and what to offer and uh, how much money they think they're going to make. So there is all this use cases around forecasting the revenue and suggesting next best product, et cetera. So one of the um, tools in my portfolio is called Einstein Guidance. Um, it was a really, really accurate forecasting tool that would just go into a very, very deep, um, uh, very, very depth of the hierarchy of our sales leaders and products, et cetera, et cetera, and just and give you a very precise number of how much you're gonna make. And um, uh, <laughs> Mark actually talks about this tool a lot. Um, he calls it Einstein attending my sales meetings. <laughs> and uh, calling out sales leaders who say that this is not the number by saying that this is the number and data told you so. Um, so that, that has been a really exciting product and actually that has been implemented uh, in, into a product for our customers. It's called Einstein Forecasting. Um, so that's one example. Um, the other set of products that my team has is around helping our customer success organization help our customers deploy the product better. Um, so one of our big flagship products is something called Net Adoption Score, which is every, uh, basically our attempt to um, let our success organization know that something is wrong with how customers are adopting the product and hence customer potentially is at risk of not getting the value of what is that they're paid for. Um, so um, at, the, at, at the heart of it is basically um, a clustering tool that uh, categorizes all customers into groups in terms of what kind of adoption challenge they're facing, and then surfaces that information to the customer success people, often before customers themselves even know that they have that challenge. So our customer success people can take action. So when you're taking these internal products that you're developing and trying to productionize them and create a product that your end customers can consume, what are some of the challenges that you run into? Um, yeah, so we... <laughs> A lot. <laughs> we, we were recently putting putting together a presentation um, about about some of the history of how we build this this products for our internal customers, and it started with a meme. It, it went like this: like the the, the first first part of the meme was um, expectation of how to build machine learning product in production, train the model, deploy the model, and then Tony Stark stays standing in the field with all the money flying around. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that picture. <laughs> And, yes, then, <laughs> and then reality of, of deploying a production ML model is <laughs> train the model, deploy the model, and then many, 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 many steps of how things are not working. <laughs> so um, yeah, there's definitely lots of challenges that have to do with uh, deploying production models, even if we're only talking about internal stakeholders like ours. Um, it usually takes us about two weeks to come up with a good, decent prototype of something that we want to build that is complete shock and awe and stakeholders love it. And then it can take us up to another year to come up with a production product that truly can reflect the, the requirements and, and truly serve many, many users at scale. So lots of challenges there. Um, 
big one is definitely data availability. I would imagine every machine learning practitioner knows about this. Um, in, for Salesforce, that's ex especially hard um, because most of our machine learning products have to operate at the company level. So for example, if we're helping our, um, uh, our customer success people help customers adapt better, we usually are not talking about one product. We're talking about the whole suite of products of Salesforce that customers bought. Well, in fact, those products usually sit on different tech stacks. So they're completely different instrumentation frameworks and uh, completely different infrastructure of how these metrics are collected and aggregated and different people responsible for doing that. So for us to build a machine learning model that, that looks at all this data, we need to have a very robust governance process um, and uh, very robust data quality checks on the data that is coming in. Um, and very, very robust uh, metric discovery, feature store, and understanding of basically what is that, what, what, that, what data is coming in. Because there is just too many metrics and too many producers to, um, uh, to rely, to basically hope, hope and pray that the data is not broken. It definitely has to be an institutionalized process for the ML app to work. So that, that would be one challenge. Um, there's definitely lots of lots of other ones. Um, I would say another challenge that I found extremely interesting is the challenge of uh, setting the mathematical problem that would address the business need in enterprise. That often has to do with the fact that um, there is rarely a target metric that is easily measurable um, that we can we can use to build something useful. So, for example. Um, if if we're looking for uh, if we're looking for good adoption, or for example a smoothly operating Salesforce instance, there is rarely like one number like monthly active users or lack of errors that explains the good outcome well. There needs to be very often needs to be a very dedicated almost like a BI work on analytics work on first creating that metric. That, that, that can serve as a target because there is many different types of ways people use Salesforce and many different tech stacks and many different types of, I don't know, errors that customer can experience. So um, creating that target metric is very, very important again, obviously, because otherwise how we're gonna build an ML model. So we collaborate very closely with um, um, our analytics team that, that specializes on thinking deeply about the philosophy of how do we measure different things and, and creating that data for us. So I know Denny's going to want to ask you more about defining these metrics, but I want to go and dive a little bit into the data quality. How do you ensure that you have have high data quality? Are there any tools that you use like great expectations or do you do everything homegrown in house to evaluate your data quality and ensure everything's high fidelity? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. So I actually, before Salesforce, I used to work at the uh, data governance company called Alation um, that makes uh, data catalog. I was a, uh, Fantastic ride. And that was actually how I joined Salesforce. I was working on the sales deal with them as part of a relation team. And I loved the team so much that I was like, okay, okay. come leave you guys. <laughs> I'm gonna stay. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, um, there's, there's multiple components to it. Um, so our Alation is our current data catalog solution. So it basically allows us to at the very least know what do we even have. Um, and there is multiple levels to knowing what is what is that, that what are those assets that we have. So there are 
um, hard assets like data sets and reports. And then there is a higher level conceptual assets like business metrics, which Alation also allows us to, to record. And then um, data quality is a, is a separate track. We, Alation allows us to know what we have, but it doesn't really tell us whether it's good or bad. Um, so in terms of data quality, um, I'm a little bit out of my depth here, but uh, we do have an amazing information management team. And they, um, they introduced this concept of data contract, where you basically, as a data producer, as a data consumer, you, you uh, handshake on a contract that says like, hey, here's what data is, and here are all the, how it's supposed to look like, and like the null values, and with the, the potential SLA on when the data is coming through, et cetera, et cetera. And then around that data contract, there are services that basically help to validate it. So many, many smart people <laughs> put together many, many data contracts. There's a pe people and process element to that as well. Um, there's always has to be a data producer who, who can investigate very quickly um, a data issue if it is escalated to them. Um, so again, with, with all of that, this is, this is how we approach data quality. Wow, that's really cool. It, it, it's, well, we're not gonna dive too much into it. Uh, that's sort of cool that you're calling out the, this concept of a data contract or you know, to ensure data reliability because it goes back to the usual thing. Unless you've got decent enough data, eh, your, your machine learning isn't gonna tell you much, is it? So. Yeah. <laughs> But, EDA takes okay. 90% of the time. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so, but hey, I, I do want to definitely focus on the metrics part. So, you, how often do you, like, you, you mentioned that net adoption score, that score that you created, right? How often do you need to change that score? Or do you, like, do you change the metric itself or its definitions? Do you have to do that? Or have you been able to solidify it now and for that matter maybe even a little historical context of how you how you came to decide to, that you needed to create this in the first place awesome question thanks again for taking it down the memory lane oh sorry about that <laughs> no no so seriously that's one of the fun memories so um we uh used to do product so i'll start with how we created net adoption score because because I, I think it's, it's pretty informative so we used to do product analytics and product data science um, in the same way as many consumer companies would, um, where uh, we had pretty strong expertise within each individual pillar. So for example, within the CRM product or within the marketing product, we, we had uh, all the metrics existed within each product. And uh, metrics all were raw. So for example, for CRM, CRM is a product that is sold using user licenses. So it stands to reason that most important metric is, is active usage, monthly and daily, because if somebody bought a license, it stands to reason that you probably want them to use it. Um, and, and everything down trickles down from that. Uh, for Marketing Cloud, very, very different um, uh, set of metrics because uh, we don't sell Marketing Cloud by, per user. It's more like a big bundle of emails and text messages, et cetera, that, that you can send. And then companies consume against that. And it doesn't really matter how many users they have using actual platform, the marketing people, right? It's, it's more about how many emails they send, et cetera. So um, net adoption score started when our new then chief product officer, Brett Taylor, um, who since then became CEO, he's a really, really cool person. Um, he was the founder of Quip that Salesforce acquired. So he came in and he was like, can you guys show me the picture of adoption across all of the products? And uh, we, we didn't even, we, we started putting together a giant table and then we realized that it's absolutely unreadable because 
you can't really take action on this. Like, how are you going to compare number of emails and texts to number of active users to, I don't know, number of dollars that customer of our uh, commerce cloud spent on the website? Um, so. Uh, because of that, we needed a metric that elevates away from raw metrics and basically abstracts away to the place where we're able to just say this is good adoption, this is bad adoption, and this is how it looks like for this entire product. Um, so um, in terms of then how an adoption score works, it definitely relies on all these metrics because that's, that's the heart of it, right? So we need to understand uh, in detail adoption by product and with all of these technical specifics to be able to make inference about whether it's good or bad. Um, so metrics are still there, um, but the trick was to, again, work with our analytics team to philosophically align on the metrics that are fundamentally so important that there's not gonna change a lot. So most of these metrics have to do with fundamental things like business model um, and the absolute crucial functionality and a little bit less of a feature of the day like most important functionality of this release and things like that. We still use those signals, but they're not at the very, very heart of, of the model itself. Um, and I would say the, the biggest um, work that we do um, in terms of adding metrics and refreshing metrics in that adoption score has to do with um, inching towards not just measuring how customers adopt, but how are they getting value out of Salesforce, which is not always the same thing because um, one is necessary, but not sufficient. So we know that if customers don't use the product at all, then they're not getting value. But now if they do use the product, they might not get the value either, right? It, it could be that they're using the product in a very inefficient way. Um, so we're just trying to constantly up-level the way we think about adoption to measure, to get closer and closer to value. So the current effort um, has to do with uh, looking not just at the feature adoption, but the, the adoption of the entire job. So customers use Salesforce to complete a certain job. So if they, for example, use a specific feature, it doesn't really mean that they complete the entire job because this feature probably needs to be used in conjunction with other features. So uh, we're right now switching from uh, metrics that have to do with feature adoption to metrics that have to do with the job adoption. That would be one example of something we do. Got it. It actually almost reminds me of this concept of like path analysis, like in you know, the old web school, uh, the web basis, like in other words, were they actually, it's, it's, did they actually click onto the add to shopping cart or actually purchase from the shopping cart and the 15 steps that they did, as opposed to just simply saying, Ooh, they looked at the product that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So, right. So then I guess what I'm curious about is that then do you feel that this, this, it's not like this process ever ends, right? This seems to be always always every month or every year or however often you know you're this process even though maybe the net adoption score itself doesn't change it seems like everything around it does is that accurate or i'm just curious i i, I would say it improves <laughs> that's my hope <laughs> it doesn't change just you know because because we got bored with the old metric for sure um but, but yeah and i i don't think even the jobs and path analysis would be the end of the road what we're really, really, really trying to help customer with is truly get more successful with Salesforce. So if you bought Salesforce to sell better, are you actually selling better? Are you converting more deals? Are you closing larger deals? Are you doing it faster with fewer salespeople, etc.? So the holy grail is to know that. But again, those things are very hard to measure, partly because that's 
proprietary customer data and you know, we don't see that. Um, so we're, we're just trying to get closer and closer to that notion. Um, I would say that every iteration of new metrics is probably we're, we're talking multiple releases. So it's, it's a year or more than a year. So it's a little bit, it's not like data scientists are shocked by a new data set every day. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so the hope is to get to that ultimate holy grail of, of knowing, are we helping the customer or not? Fantastic. I now want to switch gears a little bit into the decision-making process, because I know that you're very much focused on internal decision-making and building apps for internal stakeholders. What would you say are some of the key differences when building machine learning solutions for internal stakeholders versus external ones? Are there additional things that you need to consider or things that you don't need to consider? I would just love to hear your thoughts on this. That, that is a fantastic question. Um, in, in general, um, there is a big difference between internal and external facing products uh, in terms of what they are for. Um, so the absolute biggest requirement for external facing ML products is uh, ability to accommodate many, many different use cases. So we want it to be generalizable. So for example, um, for Einstein forecasting, the, the tool helps you forecast whoever you are. You, you, can, you can be a company that has seasonality. You could be a company that has a lot of giant deals that just disrupt the whole, the whole uh, sales flow. You could be a company that, um, that is very little. You could be a company that's really large. It's supposed to work for you. And that is a really, really complex thing to solve. So um, when ex ex uh, our external facing Einstein team takes some kind of concept, they usually completely rebuild the product with that in mind first. So I would say that is the, the biggest difference between internal facing and external facing. But um, even within in, internal facing, I think another difference is the type of stakeholders that we work with. Um, so very often our stakeholders are very senior people who are interested in explainability much more than in the recommendation which is probably not the case with external facing because our typical user is your general salesperson who just wants to be told what to do. Like, like go sell this opportunity or focus on this today, try this product, etc. Um, our stakeholders often are architects that, that want to understand in depth why we assign a certain category of risk. Um, rather than being just told like, hey, go speak to this customer. So explainability has been a gigantic business requirement for us. Um, um, alongside with accuracy, accuracy is also extremely important, more important than it would be for external products. Um, so yeah, and, and it, it has really informed the design of how we build products. Sometimes they're entire separate model just for explainability, uh, just because it is such a gigantic big requirement. So actually on the topic of requirements gathering, how different is it for working with internal stakeholders and you might have many people involved with the requirements definition versus working with customers where there's both internal and external stakeholders? How would you say the processes differ between the two? Um, frankly, haven't, haven't worked with our external customers. Um, I know that I, I did a little bit of that when I was at Alation because I led the customer success function there and we worked with our PMs to help them build uh, requirements um, for our external customers. So the process there had to do with uh, just being really diligent about um, aggregating every all the requests that come through customer support and customer success. Just really making sure that if customers said something really valuable to you, 
while they're complaining about something not working, do not forget to write it down and give to product manager. So that 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 was how that was the way you do it with external customers. Um, with internal customers, it's actually it's 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 awesome. It's nice because they're right there with you in the same company, and uh, you can co-create products together. So there's a lot of people who are extremely technical and extremely excited about the um, about our mission, who are just willing to not go through Python notebooks and CSVs, and they don't need a nice UI to collaborate with us. Um, very often, um, a senior customer success colleague would be like, I'm a rocket scientist by education. Please, please work with me. I really want to work with you guys. <laughs> so there's a lot of excitement about data science in the company. So we definitely have no shortage of awesome people who want to work with us. That's awesome. Actually, th this naturally leads to the question then, how do you especially as a manager, right? How do you keep up with the, the these latest advancements? Like, you know, you've got your rocket scientist here, you've got your data analyst there, but then how do you keep like on top of all the advancements in machine learning and deep learning? So that way you can still be helpful to everybody. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for this question. Um, I personally believe that even as a manager, I got to do some things with my hands. Otherwise, I'm going to get irrelevant. And I know it's a pretty, pretty unpopular opinion. <laughs> when I was a young analyst and many, many past jobs, jobs ago, um, lots of managers told me that you should not be doing things as a manager yourself. But I just feel like this industry is changing so rapidly that if you're not being at least a little bit heads on, you get completely out of touch uh, very, very, very quickly. So. Um, my team's culture is kind of like that. So my boss, for example, um, spent his Thanksgiving vacation uh, making his drone recognized cat from dog, <laughs> which was really nice. <laughs> um, I, I up until pretty recently, I also did some some prototypes myself. Um, my um, uh, background is a little bit more towards product management rather than data science. So I still do a lot of little product tasks. So like build a little prototypes and just, just play with things. Um, so I, I just generally believe that being hands-on is really important. I definitely don't have enough time to be hands-on to try all these different methodologies. So I heavily rely on, on the team to post interesting links. And we have a lot of internal meetings where people just summarize stuff that they're learning. But again, really believe that if I stop doing things with my hands completely, I will not be able to parse through all the smart things that they're saying anymore, <laughs> and that will become really relevant. <laughs> I, I actually completely understand your feeling. I had a past boss that basically was talking about now because he was actually like at the CXO level. So he basically said, yeah, the problem with people like us is that they've put the handcuffs on. So we're not even allowed touching the keyboard anymore. Right. So, so I actually understand I've been, I'm sort of like you from that standpoint, I've been fighting that as long as I possibly can to, to prevent myself from not being able to write code. So keep the good fight. <laughs> Exactly. Break those handcuffs. Okay. But actually I did, in all seriousness, I did have a uh, question in terms of, especially because coming from your perspectives, do you, do you have any recommendations on how you can, how you use machine learning to drive business value? I mean, that's what you're doing all the time. So for anybody who's listening to this, you know, Vidcast podcast, do you have any recommendations on how, how you, can, other people can do the same thing that you're doing right now? Yeah, um, one thing that was extremely important for us is to get disciplined 
about measuring the outcomes of the decisions that our machine learning labs are driving. And then be extremely cognizant of how that compares to the cost of maintaining those applications. And the trap that I often see um, teams fall into is they a, ignore the cost completely and B, they, they think that if their tool delivers some incremental value compared to absolutely nothing or an Excel spreadsheet, then that's great. And very, very often um, they would build a number of applications and don't really rationalize the portfolio ever. And in the end, they're stuck maintaining a whole bunch of apps that are not really even all that useful. So we really are pushing to be disciplined about getting the feedback from stakeholders and then constantly trying to connect the outcomes that, that our tools drove uh, to back to the contribution from our tools. It's not easy at all because we're in the decision-making business and, and we're just only one output to making a decision and in the end the human is the one responsible for taking action and it's pretty hard to attribute the success to the tool specifically. But nevertheless, I do think it's it's really, really important work to keep connecting um, our output with our ultimate customer success. And again, the notion of um, being very careful about the ROI of the app and, and going through your portfolio, seeing what doesn't really create value anymore, what should we do with it, um, knowing exactly how much maintenance takes and being pretty disciplined about your project management, right? And knowing how, how much time are you spending on KLO and how expensive it is for you to maintain these production apps? I think all of that is extremely important to uh, to maintain a healthy portfolio of machine learning apps. Yeah, discipline is definitely a super important trait for any machine learning organization or team. I'm just curious, how do you decide the trade-off between spending your developer development time on building a new feature versus maintaining an existing one? Like, How much time does it take to maintain something that once you've already deployed it? That's a fantastic question. Too much. <laughs> I'm sure we all we all would rather be building new features. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, um, we are. Uh, I, this year, we're even creating um, uh, finally a productivity operations org um, within our our team that that can actually focus on uh, decreasing the the cost of maintenance. I think now the so the apps that I mentioned, Einstein Guidance and Adaption Score, they're just just some of the larger ones. We have a whole bunch of smaller apps, in total probably a dozen or maybe a dozen and a half. Um, that I think at this point, there 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 needs to be standardization in order for us to reduce the maintenance cost. So. Um, we're looking to invest into better DQ tools and better deployment tools and monitoring tools to drive that cost down. Right now, it's it, it we still have a lot of time to develop new features, but uh, <laughs> data scientists are not happy. <laughs> There's definitely way more maintenance than there was five years ago. So definitely something that we want to keep decreasing. Well, definitely let us know once you figure out what those magical tools are. We definitely want them too. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> and I guess that makes sense that you have more maintenance now than you did five years ago because you probably have more use cases now than you did five years ago. Yeah, that, yeah that's exactly the case. And uh, um, uh, also somebody showed me this chart about how technical debt always grows and then, then you have to cut it dramatically or it's just going to choke you completely. So um, 
I think we're we're right there. We're at the point we need to cut our tag, tag that dramatically just because we had this amazing few years of expansion and creating new apps. There is definitely there is always this trade-off between deploying the app very very quickly versus truly deeply thinking how it plugs into the architecture of other apps and doing it in a beautiful and efficient way. So, for example, right now we have uh, a, quite a number of feature pipelines that overlap. So we do, we do the same feature engineering work multiple times across different models, so there's no reason to do that. Uh, it's also not very beautifully wired in terms of how, where the method, the, where the feature is engineered. So it's not always engineered at the very beginning. Sometimes it's re-engineered multiple times in a different model. So, you know, all these things that could have been better. Um, so yeah, th this is definitely um, a focus for our team for the next couple of years. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today on Databrew and sharing all of your thoughts about how you can use machine learning to drive business value, how you can align among all of your stakeholders, and how you can successfully develop ML applications. So thank you again, Irina, for joining us today. Thank you, Brooke and Danny. So nice to meet you.